From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. Nominees to run the Merit Systems Protection Board told a Senate committee they would act quickly to reduce a backlog of cases covering agency personnel decisions, and they expect to hear a lot of appeals about the COVID-19 vaccine mandate. More than 3,300 cases that have been appealed to the board are awaiting a decision, many for years. The board hasn't had a quorum for nearly five years. The Senate will vote on three nominees, Kathy Harris, Raymond Lyman, and Tristan Levitt. The head of Air Force recruiting says a rise in racial tensions and the use of National Guard troops last year after the death of George Floyd have caused far fewer minorities interested in military service. The percentage of black respondents who reported an interest in military service dropped from 20 percent in 2019 to 8% by the fall of last year. The percentages of Hispanics indicating they would enlist fell from 18% to 14% over the same time. Major General Ed Thomas, commander of the Air Force Recruiting Service, says the data shows the racial division in our nation has done damage to recruiting efforts. The Information Technology Industry Council is calling on the Office of Management and Budget to give more detailed information to departments on how to choose which IT systems should be migrated to a zero-trust environment first. The industry trade group said OMB should link the guidance to known threats, high-risk vulnerabilities, and systems that are the biggest targets by hackers. Earlier this month, the White House issued its draft zero-trust strategy for civilian agencies to deploy cybersecurity architectures. The draft just requires agencies to complete identity, device, network, application, and data actions by the end of fiscal 2024 and offers no guidance on prioritizing what systems to work on first. After millions of infections and deaths and the worst economic crash since the Great Depression, the COVID-19 pandemic continues to impact the modern world. But the pandemic also brings opportunity to consider the future of the United States in many ways. That's according to Thomas Wright. He's a director and senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. His new book is Aftershocks, Pandemic Politics and the End of the Old International Order. The book is co-written by Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, Colin Call. Tom, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's great to be here. Um, You say this in your book, quote, there is never a good time for a pandemic but the novel coronavirus hit the world at perhaps the worst possible moment, when international cooperation had largely broken down after a tumultuous decade. The fact that world leaders were hardly on speaking terms and could not even arrange to meet to discuss the pandemic is a stark illustration of this. Tom, why had international cooperation broken down so badly? Yeah, it was a tough decade. You know, after the financial crisis, populism rose around the world, China became more you know, even more authoritarian under Xi Jinping, as did, you know, Russia. When Donald Trump was elected, there was real pressure on those multilateral um, institutions. And we saw this rising geopolitical rivalry really, you know, from the beginning of the decade from when Xi Jinping took over, but between the United States and China. So all of that, I think, came together uh, to mean that in, in 2019 and 2020, when this hit, it was fundamentally different than in 08, 09 when we had an economic crisis. So you remember then 
the world got together with the G20, you know, they put aside their differences and tried to basically solve the crisis. This time, uh, they, weren't, they were hardly speaking to each other and definitely weren't um, cooperating with each other on the worst pandemic in 100 years. I was going to say, even the Europeans weren't working with each other within right. Europe. Yeah, I mean, this, this, that was a really interesting piece of it. You know, the EU is works on almost everything uh, in any individual European country except for health policy. <laughs> you know, so health policy has always been the domain of national government. So when this crisis hit, the EU really had no sort of idea what to do. They were actually even behind the Trump administration in realizing sort of how severe it was. And then there was this mad scramble for you know, scarce medical supplies. So they were, you know, taking it from each other, competing with each other. Um, and it took them quite a while, um, you know, to really realize that if they didn't work together, it could be the end of the EU. And so they did begin to do that after a few months, but they also had a very rocky road at the beginning. So how has the pandemic affected the US-China relationship? Because it wasn't that good to begin with before the pandemic. No, it was, you know, the, the, it, there was increased rivalry and, you know, Trump obviously was quite hostile in his rhetoric to China. But uh, it's interesting that uh, in mid-January 2020, just when this thing was getting started, you remember the United States and China signed a trade agreement, uh, a phase one trade agreement. And Trump saw this as maybe the beginning of a broader you know, agreement or at least some better relations with Xi Jinping and China. So when it sort of hit, there was, you know, a moment when there was a little bit of a thaw. But what the pandemic did really, I think, was turbocharge the rivalry. Because on the one hand, it showed that China wouldn't cooperate with the international community on a pandemic. And on the other hand, you know, Trump blamed China and basically endorsed those in his administration who wanted to, you know, try to contain it. And what we saw in the subsequent sort of 10 or 11 months um, was really a wide array of measures uh, to try to contain, you know, China's sort of rise in assertive foreign policy. And China's still not cooperating, even today. Right, right. Even, even, even today, um, there was a, an investigative team from the WHO, you know, that went in and there were real sort of doubts about, you know, about the effectiveness of that team because of the influence that China had, you know, on it. And the director general of the WHO has complained that China is still not providing critical data and information to establish the origins you know, of COVID-19. You mentioned the World Health Organization. Why couldn't they bring countries together? Isn't that their job in a health crisis? Yeah, they, have, they basically had this nightmare scenario at the beginning where they had on the one hand Xi Jinping and on the other hand Trump. And so they were literally like stuck you know, between them and the director general's uh, Tedros's uh, philosophy and and, uh, uh, you know, modus operandi in this situation was to try to praise these leaders publicly and get some sort of practical cooperation. But that uh, alienated the United States, which I think correctly believed that um, he, he was, uh, uh, you know, he was overlooking some of the real deficiencies in China's, you know, response and not putting pressure on them as the WHO previously did in SARS to cooperate more with the international community. And do you think that the World Health Organization is permanently weakened and affected by that? Or is there a way for them to come back and be strengthened again so that they can take their role in another health crisis that might come down the road? 
I, I think just in the crisis that we had, you know, it was a mix, it's a mixed report card, right? They, they didn't put enough pressure on China and they sort of compromised themselves early on. But they did actually also do a lot of good work and they were in a very difficult position and they, they ultimately, you know, are not really all that independent. They, they have to account to the member states, particularly the large, you know, member states. Coming next, more of my conversation with Tom Wright about what the U.S. should do in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The COVID-19 pandemic caused a global crisis. Its effects will be felt by all areas of the federal government and beyond. I'm here with Tom Wright. He's a director and senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. He's the co-author of Aftershocks, Pandemic Politics and the End of the Old International Order. Tom, your subtitle, The End of the Old International Order, what does that mean? Why, why has it ended and what's the new international order? Yeah, I think what we're trying to sort of get at there is two things. One, the idea that the major powers of China, the United States and the EU are all gonna sort of work together to tackle these common problems, you know, in international institutions, that, that that is no longer, we can no longer assume that, right? That we just saw this major crisis with almost no cooperation. And we're sort of in a different world now, particularly with the United States and China. And the second part of it is that, you know, we assumed also that organizations like the WHO, that the US would sort of shape and lead those pretty automatically, right? And they would reflect the values and interests of democracies. And that's not true either. And so, you know, we need to cooperate to prepare for future pandemics, but we also need to realize that the international order has changed and we can't just count on uh, organizations like the WHO or assume that world leaders will come together, you know, to deal with these threats in the future. Well, the Trump administration had disengaged from international institutions. The Biden administration is re-engaging in those institutions and with the rest of the world and with our allies. So can't we go back to the old international order? They are. Yeah, Biden is re-engaging. But even there, you see um, Biden officials, Biden administration officials raise concerns about China's influence in the WHO, about the investigations that the WHO has ongoing, that they haven't gone far enough. And I think the broader you know, problem is that even for you know, a liberal internationalist administration like you know, President Biden's, um, they still have that rivalry you know, with China and that will affect uh, the, the future path of the WHO. And all around the world, there are lots of nationalist leaders like Jair Bolsonaro in Brazil and, and many others who aren't going to cooperate in the same way. And so we need to basically prepare for future sort of threats and challenges, assuming that we won't have the same levels of cooperation that we did in the financial crisis. But, but let's drill down on that. So yeah. how do we prepare? How do we adjust to this new world order to position the U.S. in a, in a better, better place for other global crises? Yeah, so in the book, we, we argue that the U.S. needs to try to work with China and needs to engage in the WHO for sure. But we also need a backup plan if that doesn't work. Right, and the backup plan that we propose is that the U.S. would bring together like-minded countries in what we call a global alliance for pandemic preparedness that would commit to higher levels of transparency, higher levels of cooperation and coordination 
in the event of a future crisis and do more on global public health, even if it's you know not required by the WHO. And so we need to uh, set a standard and um, that others you know can aspire to. And also in a future crisis, those countries could come together and put pressure on other countries, you know, if they're not cooperating with the international community. Do you think government leaders in this country have the political will to do what it takes to be prepared for the next global crises, pandemic or otherwise? You know, I worry, I worry about that um, uh, for sure. I worry that we, we're, we could be in a situation where, um, you know, Republicans sort of believe um, that the problem was an overreaction to the pandemic. Um, you know, uh, the country as a whole sort of believes vaccines could be the solution. The truth is, you know, the next pandemic could be worse than COVID-19. It could be more lethal. It's not necessarily going to give younger people a pass um, on it. Uh, the great influenza of 1918, 1919 affected younger people disproportionately. Um, so we need to uh, take this really as a warning. Uh, what COVID has done, apart from the great hardship it's inflicted, is it's given us advance notice of future, you know, threats. And we have to use that time to prepare uh, for the worst case scenario in the hope of, you know, averting it. Tom, briefly in the time that we've got left, what do we do about the economic crater essentially caused by the COVID pandemic that, um, you know, is going to have a long uh, effect? And given that we have to pay for things like climate mitigation, I mean, how do we do that? Yeah, I think the really interesting thing about the economic response was how overwhelming it was. You know, that was one of the bits that actually did sort of work, especially from the central banks, you know, internationally. And it was without really formally coordinating or cooperating, um, as, as was the case in the financial crisis. So that's sort of interesting. But as we look ahead, I think uh, what worries me is, you know, the, the developing world, which I think has largely been left behind on this, and the question about whether or not we're really going to have a global effort to have the global economy recover. And if we can come up with sort of a new economic model that balances the need for resilience on supply chains and other things, with also the need to have an open global economy with trade and, you know, and, and the interaction that we saw before the pandemic. All right. Well, Tom, thanks so much for joining me and a very interesting perspective. I Thank appreciate you. it. Up next, she's been called a virus hunter and disease detective. Straight ahead on Government Matters, my conversation with the number two at the CDC. We archive every episode of Government Matters on govmatters.tv. I'll be right back. A leader at the CDC was one of the first people in the U.S. to flag an unknown pneumonia in Wuhan, China, that later became the COVID-19 virus. That early warning sign was, the, was only the start of CDC's role in managing the pandemic. That leader is Dr. Ann Shuket, Principal Deputy Director at the CDC, retiring this month after 33 years. She's a finalist for the Paul A. Volcker Career Achievement Award given by the Partnership for Public Service. Dr. Shuket, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. So you were one of the first people in the U.S. to see the warning signs of COVID-19 in China. Talk about what you saw and what you did. There was an alert on December 31st in the um, listserv ProMed, and I saw that and immediately um, contacted our staff who run the respiratory viral work, including um, asking them to connect with our colleagues who 
or in China, and to understand whether we were hearing anything and what else might be going on. For many of us who had worked on the SARS response in 2003, the, that first alert sounded very eerie, like a new virus might be causing um, serious problems. But early days, it's hard to know. And so the first thing was to, to get as much information as we could very quickly. And were you able to get the information that you needed? Well, within a few hours, we found out that uh, the numbers were larger than what was in that um, early report and that um, very little was, was um, known yet. Um, but of course, as the weeks unfolded, um, you know, the, the seriousness of the issue became more evident. At CDC, we activated our emergency operations center. We deployed people to airports. We were very, very active during the month of January. And then of course, in February, we started to see uh, uh, additional spread here in the United States. So obviously one of uh, uh, one thing that you need to do is warn the public and public officials. Uh, how did you do that? Yeah, CDC has a number of ways to get the word out. So one of our first steps was what we called a HAN, a health advisory note, health alert note, where we sent uh, what we knew and what we thought clinicians and public health ought to do about what we knew. Uh, we did that in early January and um, also began doing uh, briefings for the media. So, you know, information is uh, currency in an emerging infectious disease and in the various ones that I've had to respond to, the more we communicate, the more the public has the information they need so that they can protect themselves. You also had to really work to earn the public trust uh, at the CDC. What were some of the things that you did to do that? Yeah, you know, trust is such a critical issue in any scary situation. And over the years, um, we have had ups and downs in the reliability of CDC or the, the trust that the public gives us. And of course, um, the coronavirus pandemic has been uh, a pretty tough one for CDC and for government in general. But we um, are committed in our efforts to be transparent, be honest, open, and express empathy, let people know what we know and what we don't know, be honest about that, and to explain what we're doing to try to find out more and to, to protect people. We also like to give people actions that they can take so that they can have some control over the situation. Those are the, the classic principles of risk communication and what we've really been training CDC staff on uh, since the bird flu issue of uh, you know the 90s. And Dr. Shukin, I know that uh, you've been working on COVID nonstop, obviously, since that, that day um, uh, a year and a half ago. Um, I know you've had a, a long career other than that. So can you tell us about some of the other diseases that you've worked on? Yeah, I've been so privileged. You know, in 33 years at CDC, I came in as a disease detective and was initially working on uh, bacterial infections that can cause meningitis and also infections that can affect pregnancy. So one of my first uh, focus areas was on preventing group B strep infections in pregnancy. And uh, happy to say that based on guidelines CDC worked on together with the obstetric and pediatric community, we've prevented about 100,000 babies from being born with that terrible infection that can be life-threatening. Uh, but I got to work on many other emergency responses, the H1N1 pandemic of influenza, the Zika, terrible outbreak with the, the impact on, on pregnant women, particularly the babies, and then uh, on the Ebola, West Africa, 
um, response. Um, between epidemics, most of my work has been on vaccines and other infectious uh, diseases that can be prevented. You know, Dr. Shuka, you're known for mentoring young scientists. Why, why is that a priority for you? Well, of course, the, um, I was the benef I, I benefited from incredible mentors um, and sponsors early in my career. And um, it, it, I have to say there's some selfish reasons. It's just a lot of fun to work with um, new people who are new to the public health uh, arena or people who are young and uh, you know, very eager and not yet cynical or, or jaded and to, to try to help continue their optimism and to continue to uh, uh, support their motivation. You know, I, I'm such a champion for public health in general and see the possibility that individuals can, uh, with almost any kind of interest and skill set, can find their way in public health. And so I help, I, I enjoy helping people navigate their careers and, and learn how to uh, really make a difference because it's uh, an extraordinary thing to get to work in public health and in public service in general, where your work is fun and interesting, but it also really matters. And just looking to the future, are we ready for the next pandemic? We have a lot of work to do. I think that this has been uh, an uh, awakening moment for uh, the government, for the public, for the nation, that the U.S. was not as prepared as we thought we were, and that in general, we really need to invest in long-term commitments to that frontline public health capacity at your state and local level, to the laboratory infrastructure, to our data infrastructure, so that what the public needs is there and that we can uh, not just react quickly, but predict and, and foreshadow and really get ahead of these viruses. The viruses are still out there. They're mutating all the time and they're gonna be new ones. And of course, we're not done with this one. Well, Dr. Shukat, thank you so much for your work and congratulations on your nomination. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website at govmatters.tv. And don't forget, you can find every episode of our program on YouTube. Hit subscribe to see all the videos we post. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Katherine Roloff and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.